2 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 10 has been our focus these last few months. If you would, please join with me in prayer, and then we'll read the first 10 verses of chapter 6. Father, we come before you. Father, as we look at our brother Paul, his words written by your power, written by your spirit, and oh, how they apply today. Father, I just ask that you make them real in our lives, that you make them one in us, and that, Father, as the Apostle Paul's life was that of much enduring, Father, may each of our lives be that of much enduring. Father, may we understand the urgency that is around us and that the day of salvation is even now, and even now you help us. And yet, Father, may we understand the hostilities of this world and your holiness. And Father, may we understand that the word of truth, and it's in the power of God, and you've given us the weapons of righteousness for our right and our left hand. Help us, Father, to press on to the upward calling of Christ, to your glory and praise. Amen. Chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right and the left hand. By glory and dishonor, evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers, yet true, as known, yet well known, as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, yet poor, poor, yet making many rich, and having nothing, yet possessing all things." It's a powerful text, and it shows us the joy and the sorrow of ministry. Uh, and, and it is what you and I will endure. I shared with you last week that those who are committed to the things of God will be obedient. And in that commitment and obedience, you will see the effect of that ministry. If you are saved today, you are called a minister of the Word of God. If you are called today and you are saved this day, you are an ambassador for the King of kings and Lord of lords. Therefore, you must look before you and see what your task is. And Paul has given us four things here that we need to focus on because when you step into the arena of dealing with the hostility of the world against the things of God and the holiness of God based on His purposes and His powers and His plans then you will understand the overwhelming joy 
of being a child of God. But you will also at the same time understand the overwhelming sorrow that crushes you. They do not go away until your faith becomes sight. And you will endure. And hopefully you will endure with much endurance. The Apostle Paul's life can be summarized as one of much endurance. Um, Too many I have watched today, as they go older, become less and less involved because, quote unquote, I'm preparing to retire. And they are completely missing what the purpose is. And you know what? I can honestly tell you from a personal viewpoint, um, you cannot endure any greater sorrow than being in the ministry. Absolutely. I don't care what comes at you. Cannot compare to what the ministry will serve up. But I can honestly tell you that you will have a level of joy that no one can comprehend. And you, at times, won't even be able to describe. And you can't. You can't. You just take it. You look to heaven. You say, thank you. And you press on. Because you know the sorrows around the corner. Which brings me, and I want to review this quick because we're just going to do verse 10. We have a privilege, and the Apostle Paul, the, the evangelical church today has missed this or has put it someplace where they can't remember where they put it. But whatever it is, the privilege of who you work with. And, 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 and I, the reason that I believe that it is, 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 is kind of has disappeared is because I watch everything in the church is man-centered now. I'm trying to sway you, persuade you, whatever it is I'm going to do. Uh, Some of you won't remember this, but uh, act like it. And and I used it in my Sunday school illustration. Back in, uh, I can't remember if it's 67 or 68, uh, John Lennon made a statement that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. And lordy, lordy, everybody had a conniption. Okay, if you ever listen to the complete interview, the tragedy was he's right. Not only was he right in the late 60s, it has flowered now to this massive thing. His statement was that the Beatles and their music had more influence on the young culture than the person of Jesus Christ did. Of course, everybody had a cow. That's not true. Look around at the church today and tell me it's not true. We were warned in 1968 by a group meeting in London, England, called the Unity of the Church, that America had better beware because music was going to steal Christ from the church. Nobody yelled about that one, did they? And yet... Look around. What do you see today? Who has a greater influence on our young people? Music or the church? Okay, I'm just asking. I mean, you can sit there and be mad at John Lennon until the cows come home. But you know what? Perhaps he was a prophet. (laughs) He warned us it was coming. John Stott warned us it was coming. Martin Lloyd-Jones warned us that it was coming. And we did really well at ignoring the warning. 
Because part of it is we who are Christians don't understand the privilege of who it is we work with. Who has called you? Who has set you apart? Who has empowered you? Who has placed you at a time such as this? Verse 1, we work together with him. With him is the one comes out of 20 and 21 of chapter 5. Therefore, we are made ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew God made him. Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. That's amazing stuff, people. And Paul focused on that because he would have these great times of sorrow and these great times of joy. And yet he kept saying, I'm working with God. So everything's right on track. Right on schedule, to the jot and to the tittle. Not a nanosecond early, not a nanosecond late. But he also understood the passion. Second half of verse 1 and verse 2. There's a passion. We urge you, we beg you. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listen to you. And the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, he says, behold, now is the time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I remember talking to a Jewish man one time. And he says, well, I just can't believe the way you believe. And I said, well, you will when you see him. And I said, uh. He says, well, perhaps. He says, but the first thing I will ask him will be this. Is this your first time here or your second time here? And I looked at him and said, Gary, it'll be too late. That's the last time I've talked to him. It's kind of amazing if you think about it. And yet I see an all-out assault on Christianity. All out assault. And I've never seen anything like it. Any time in the history of the church. And it's global. It's global. Shut the Christians up. I mean, in some cases, we're doing it ourselves. We, I don't know if we're ashamed. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Some I would prefer shut up. But... That's the time that we are in. And it is your and I responsibility as ministers of Jesus Christ to have this overwhelming passion for the things of Christ to be called out. And we have to stand. My prayer for each and every one of you on a daily basis is that you stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's already there. But I pray that you stand in it. And as the Apostle Paul said to the letter to the Romans... Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of salvation. And if I'm ashamed of it, then I've negated the reason that I was called and the fact that I'm an ambassador of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords of the heavenlies. But in that, we have to deal with the power. And the power is three through seven. And we see it's a war. 
We don't want to do anything to cause them an offense that our ministry would be discredited. Again, this is kind of a central focus to it is the integrity of our ministry. And I don't want to do anything that would cause it to be discredited. All right. And, and it can happen in, in any numerous ways because the Apostle Paul in verse four says we are commending ourselves. If we're going to get an accolade, like we're going to get an attaboy. Okay. This will be the attaboy that we ourselves are servants of God in much endurance. That's the key. I am but a servant of God. And in being a servant of God, there must be endurance. And we looked at these. It comes into two breaks, basically. There are sets of three, but the two breaks. You have that of the hostility of the world, and you have that of the holiness of God. Okay? And I want to make sure that when I look at the hostility of the world and the holiness of God, that I don't do anything to cause that ministry to be discredited. Because with much endurance, this is what I am doing. It comes in all kinds of ways. There's afflictions, there's hardships, there's distresses, there's beatings, there's imprisonments, there's tumults. That's what the world brings at it. But you'll find yourselves in the middle of your ministry in labors, working to the point of exhaustion, sleeplessness. And sometimes even in hunger. But even in those you will have it be an impurity and in knowledge and patience and kindness. And in the Holy Spirit and in genuine love. And that's what you and I are dealing with. Because it is the word of truth in the power of God. You've got to understand there's no gimmick to this. There's no let me set the mood. There is no way for me to persuade you. It must be the word of God in the the word of truth in the power of God. If it isn't done, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I heard a pastor the other day tell me that they're going to start reaching out to the young people in our community. And I was like, hallelujah. And he says, he says, we're going to come together and we're going to turn the lights down low and the music up loud and we'll reach them. I said, dude, I did that in tw- when I was 20. We weren't really looking for Jesus. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Dude, all we need to do is get Led Zeppelin saved and then the whole youth population will be ours. That's silly. Some of you say, who's Led Zeppelin? Never mind. <laughs> That's the other generation that got lost. <laughs> I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. If God called me and he says, I'm going to give you weapons. What weapons? You're going to go against the fortresses of speculations and lofty thinking. With what? Rock and roll? Really? I don't think so. You go with the word of truth. Heard a conversation just this morning on my way into church. And the guy says, science has proven it. It's all at rest. It's not even worth debating over evolution and creation. Evolution is scientifically proven. I'm sitting there going, what science? What did you see? 
He says, well, I've heard the debates. It's based on debates now? Truth is truth. Okay? Science has a hypothesis that has to be borne out scientifically by truth. If it isn't, then it's a guess. Oh, Paul calls it a lofty thought. Perfect. I'm happy about that. Well, you understand that science takes a long time. Billions and billions of years. Right? But the Christians go, well, maybe God did do it through evolution. If God created through evolution, he's a liar. Okay? The penalty of sin is death. Evolution says death came first. Really? So he can't get chapter one of the Bible right, and I'm supposed to believe him halfway through. No. People, people, people. Do you understand the privilege that you have? Do you understand the passion that you have? Do you understand the power that is going to come against you and the power you have to withstand? That's the key, people. And yet we get batted around. I'm sure nobody here has ever been in a ministry serving and laboring the Lord and not been discouraged. Word of truth in the power of God has given us weapons of righteousness for the right and the left hand. Why? We fight all around. We fight on our left. We fight on our right. We fight in front. We fight in back. Fight over us. We fight under us. And it's unrelenting. I can fight the afflictions that come from a hostile word world. I can fight my struggle with my own purity before a holy God. It's unrelenting. It doesn't stop. But the key is that you get back up and you press on. Not that we've arrived. Then we moved into the paradox. Verses 8 through 10. Glory and dishonor, evil report, good reports, regarded as deceivers, yet true, unknown, yet well-known, dying, yet behold, we live as punished, yet not put to death. And that's part of what we do. Because once you have the transformation, once you are born again, once you have entered into the kingdom of God, you are now his possession, bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the world's going to hate you. What they used to honor you, they will now despise you. And then when you get into the body of Christ, you're going to start running sometimes. People just get mad at you. And so you become the antichrist, the deceiver. Yet you're still giving truth. Or you may teach something that they just don't like. And how can that person be right? And it goes on and on and on. Think about the things they accused the Apostle Paul of, and yet he's writing to churches that he founded. You're not even a church if I don't show up there, and yet you're accusing me of being a deceiver, a false apostle, of not speaking the word of truth. Brilliant. That's almost like saying Jesus is doing miracles by the power of Satan. That's an interesting conclusion. Did you work on that all night? 
We look at these last three in verse 10. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. This is the last three of the paradox. The sorrow and joy. If you look at it, and we looked at it last week in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, where he goes list through being beaten, being stoned and shipwrecked and trouble in the country from his countrymen, uh, from thieves and murderers and all this. But he lends it with the very last one, which is I always thought fascinating uh, and yet convicting. My daily concern for the churches. I mean, if you look, I, I thought, dude, if he was struggling with the condition of the churches when he was writing that letter, what would he be dealing with right now? Because the things that I hear are amazing. Are amazing. In Romans, he says, I have continual sorrow and a great heaviness of heart. It's always there, he said. It never goes away. There's always this burden of discouragement. This, this, this burden that, I, what's the point? He says it there in verse 10. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Listen, I want you to understand something. The, the terminology here in the original language, this isn't trivial stuff. Okay. Um, this is an extraordinarily deep pain. It, it's, an ex, it's a deep sorrow. And, and, and I think if you're really honest and you look around at the evangelical community, I moved to Colorado in 70, was it 78 or 79. And, uh, when I first got here, you, you had to find a job and all that and got that taken care of. And then my mom had contacted me. And at that time, she says, if you're really smart, you'll get yourself into a church. Uh, I wasn't really smart then. But I, I thought about that today. And you know what? You can't say that in good conscience. If your kid goes off someplace, you can't say, hey, get you a church. Because you got to be careful. There is all kinds of weird stuff out there. I would rather my children stay out of church than to get into a deceptive church. And there's more deceit out there in the church than any time I've ever seen it. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's always there. You always have those. I mean, you can go look at the Apostle Paul and see these people coming in behind him on a regular basis sowing seeds of discourse. But it's easy because I have people who will call me, you know, on a regular basis saying, what kind of worship service do you have? Okay, I know what you're asking me. Have you ever thought about it? What a blasphemous statement that is. I worship the creator of existence my own way. I've seen that in Scripture. It never works out well. And yet I, I try to get people to say, do I want, gee, I'll just go find your church. My son and daughter-in-law are moving to Australia. And I told them, good luck. And they said, well, you know, there's churches everywhere. I said, you got Dutch Reform and Anglican. Two primaries. You don't, Catholics don't even have a foothold in Australia. Dutch Reform do not believe you eat on the Sabbath. 
Uh, I preached with a guy in Chattanooga been a number of years ago who's Dutch Reform and he wouldn't eat on Sabbath. And we were a bunch of Baptists and we went to every chop house we could get our hands on on the Saturday and pig out. Okay, and he just sat there. I can't believe you don't have mercy on me. I can't believe you haven't read Hebrews. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? And then the Anglican, do I really need to even go there? Really? I don't know. They're leaving the Anglican church because now you can be gay. And I don't mean happy. Okay. And Catholics are saying we'll take the Anglican priest even though they're married because our numbers are down. Sounds great to me, man. All right. But I can't tell my kid to go find, you know, go plug into the Dutch reform. It'll be a blast. Paul says, I have great sorrow, continual sorrow, a heaviness of heart, a broken heart over the lost. His cry, I would give up my salvation, would Israel be saved? But he also had a broken heart over the disobedient believers who are being swayed by false teachers and the corruption that was in the body of Christ. Brought Paul great sorrow. It tore at Paul. It depressed him. It discouraged him. Constant sorrow. Yet, he says, always rejoicing. Always rejoicing. Paul always, underneath it all, had great joy. Listen, I want, to underst- I want you to understand something about joy. This isn't happiness. Happiness is based on happenstance. Okay? I was coming up the interstate one time on my motorcycle and the big black clouds had moved in like they always do. And I just got there at that first Larkspur exit and quick like a bunny, zing, my little motorcycle underneath the bridge as this hailstorm just ripped through that gulch. But I had gotten under the bridge and had great happiness and joy. Okay? Because motorcycles and hail, hmm, it's easier to mix water and oil. But there's a joy because of the privilege of who I work with. And the passion that salvation is today and the power that overcomes the hostility of the world and brings us into the holiness of God. That no matter what the paradox is of the joy and the sorrow, you can't steal the joy. You've heard it. Well, that person stole my joy. You gave it to him. Nobody can take my joy. It's impossible. Does it mean I'm not discouraged or heavy hearted? No, it happens on a regular basis. It's like, have you read the Beatitudes? Blessed is the poor in spirit. The word blessed there is the word that you and I would get happiness out of. But how in the world can I be the poor in spirit is a beggar in spirit. And I should be happy about being a beggar in spirit. 
Well, yeah, because once you're a beggar in spirit, you realize you can't do it. And it's not the poor people. It's the person that I don't get a crumb of bread unless it falls off of somebody's table. That's the terminology he uses for the poor in spirit. Once you get into that position, you're ripe for salvation. And you go through that. And I listen to people who says, well, we need to be of this attitude. Knock yourself out. Knock yourself out. Because what I've learned is, is that once I am saved, I am already there. I will have the sorrows that a hostile world brings and the holiness of God shines on me. And yet through all of it, you can't steal the joy because I'm his and you can't move me. Nothing in creation can separate me from the love of God. That's joy. It's an untouchable part of the soul. He says, I don't care what the sorrow is. This untouchable part of my soul cannot be moved. See, it was Paul understanding it was God's grace. It was Paul's understanding it was God's power. The goodness of God was in his life. And you know what? When he got a hold of that, he rejoiced always. Even to the point when he was in the Philippian jails, they were singing praises to God. Shackled in stocks. Yeah. Yeah. If you read Paul's letters, a lot of his letters, he's dealing with very tough situations. First Corinthians is one of those. But if you look throughout any of Paul's letters, you will find these doxologies scattered throughout the whole thing. They're just poof. He's going and dealing with the sin and he's got this man's got his father's wife and you're boasting about it and all the rest. And all of a sudden he breaks into doxology. Oh, Jesus. Why? Because you know what? He can look past all of the garbage and say, Hallelujah, Lord. Listen, it's not a person who is cold-hearted. It's not a person immune to sorrow. The Apostle Paul dealt with sorrow. It's not a person immune to discouragement. There are pains in this life. There are people who will let you down. And I look at the Apostle Paul Nobody had more discouragement, letdowns, pains of life than the Apostle Paul. I can't imagine it. But you know what? The Apostle Paul never lost his joy. One of the most joyful letters he ever wrote was a letter to the Philippians. You know what's amazing about that? He's chained to a Roman soldier in prison. Encouraging in the joy of the Lord. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. His joy could not be touched. This is a paradox. You have this great, overwhelming, crushing sorrow and this rejoicing always. An unending joy in the midst of unending sorrow. It also says this, as poor, yet making many rich. You know what? I think about the Apostle Paul. And one of the things that always comes to my mind dealing with the Apostle Paul is he didn't have a lot of what we would classify as worldly possessions. Not only that, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he says this, 
For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. Okay, the word labor there is working to the point of exhaustion. Okay, labor and hardship and how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He worked. And if he had to, night and day. He worked with his hands. He was a, a leather worker. Some people, translations will say he made tents. Well, what did they make it out of? Leather. I mean, it might be goat leather. It might be cow leather. It could be camel leather, whatever. I mean, but people, he was a leather worker. That's what he did. That was his trade. And he worked night and day. Why? He didn't want anybody to have to support him. He worked day and night. And yet, he taught day and night from house to house. He never stopped. Working night and day. You know why? He didn't have a bank account. He just had to support himself. But yet, if you look at what he did, he was also supporting those who were around him. Whether it was Titus or Timothy or Barnabas. They all assisted helping one another. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to go without sleep. He knew what it was like to suffer hardship. He knew what it was like to labor. And you know what? It was just to make ends meet. Think about us today. We look at the poor man who's living paycheck to paycheck. The Apostle Paul was living day to day. And yet, he he never bellyached about it. I can't get ahead. The stock market is crushing me. He's just not getting it. How will I ever retire? I'll have to be a greeter at Walmart. He'd have loved it. He'd have shared the gospel with everybody walked through the door. <laughs> you know, Jesus, want him? You know what? There was a few occasions where he would get some an offering from the churches. He wrote to the Philippians and says, you knew abundance and prosperity. He knew abundance and prosperity because of them. They gave him a gift. Just here, Paul, some cash. But you know one of the amazing things about the Apostle Paul? Even when I look at the sorrow and rejoicing and poor, one of the things that I can always say emphatically without a cause and without even doubting is that he was always content. He was content whether he had much. He was content whether he had little. He was content if he had sorrow. He was content in rejoicing. And yet he had none. Of this world's goods. But those around him. Those who believed in what he preached. What he said. It says. Making many rich. You preach the gospel. The people enter into the kingdom. Now they're only heirs of creation. They have an inheritance. What is the inheritance? 
The span of his hand is creation. The waters fit in the hollow of his hand. That is the inheritance. And yet this man, Paul, who had nothing that the world had to offer, is the one who was presenting to that to those who would believe. John and Peter were asked for blessing and they looked at the man, the people asking for blessing and said, silver and gold, we have none. What I have, I give to you. And what he had was eternal life. Now think about that for a second. All an ambassador of God has to offer is what? Eternal life. I wonder what Steve Jobs would have done with that. He could have used it. Wealthiest corporation on the planet Earth. And the founder is eternally separated from God. What a deal. What a deal. See, the true riches is the riches of the gospel. It is the word of truth and the power of God. And if I think about the Apostle Paul, I think, what an amazing man. Working all of those years to live day to day, and even with all of that labor, really had nothing. And yet, he made people eternally rich. It is the Apostle Paul who is the Apostle to the Gentiles, what you and I are. He brought eternal security. He brought eternal riches to each and every one of us. And yet, he died in the Mamatine prison with his head being removed. And he had to ask a young, his young protege, Timothy, bring me a coat. Bring me a coat. Look what it says next. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. You know what he's saying here? It's like he's concluding this. He says, hey, don't feel bad about my poverty. Don't feel sorry for my poverty. Don't feel bad that I don't have anything. Because I possess all things. You know, I was thinking about this. To go back, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 21. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Doesn't matter. Things in the past, things in the present, things that you don't know are coming. They still all belong to you. Why? Because we belong to Christ. 
and Christ belongs to God. Letter to the Ephesians, Paul says that we have the unspeakable riches of Jesus Christ. You ever thought about that? What are the riches of Jesus Christ? You ever thought about that? That dare give you, cause your brain to hurt. I can't comprehend that. I don't understand that. It's amazing. They've got these pictures out there taken of these uh, solar flares. And they got some kind of weird filter on them. But you look at them, you're like, dude, that's cool. And then you see this big old plume of fire like that. And they tell you how many million miles tall that is. And you're like, dude, that's like welding on steroids. (laughs) You know, you just sort of, you're like, wow, that's kind of cool. You know what? That's part of the riches of Christ. I see we sent the Voyager up. Some of you don't remember when they launched that, but it's been up there a long time. They actually didn't expect it to run this long. It's got the ever-ready bunny battery in it, and it's left our solar system. And it was just supposed to go check out Jupiter. (laughs) But you know how men are. Never ask for directions. Just left the solar system. And and I think about it, I said, you know, this thing's gone out and looked at Neptune and Uranus and Pluto and this outside meteor belt. And now it's just cruising off for a ride, you know, (laughs) and and you realize that the guy made a comment to me. He says, do you understand that an iPad or what do they call them things? A nano has more computer power than Voyager? And you're sitting there going, no wonder you can't steer it. <laughs> it's, the thing just took off. And yet I think about the, the ground that this thing has covered, and now it's leaving our solar system, and yet that's still all of the riches of Christ. That's amazing to me. And yet, you and I are only joint heirs to that. And yet, you may not have anything here. So what? At Christmas, Christmas is coming, and they've got this company that uh, you can buy a star or name a star for somebody, and they give you a little map. And <laughs> What a racket. I grew up with pet rocks, and we just haven't learned a thing, have we? <laughs> and I look at that, and I say, well, wait a minute. My Savior owns those. He's already named them. Quit it. Somebody name a star after me. What a fool. We belong to Christ. And we have the unspeakable riches of Christ because Christ belongs to God. Let me ask you a question. How long lasting are those treasures? I don't even want to get into the new heaven and the new earth in a city, Jerusalem, that's 1,500 miles cubed. Can I get a two-bedroom condo? Does heaven have swimming pools? You know, if you play golf in heaven, you shoot an 18. I don't understand it. I don't, no, I don't know. The complete absence of sin. 
I don't, I don't know what that means. No dentist. I, these are the things that you and I have to think about because when I think about the Apostle Paul, when it comes to earthly possessions, what did he have? Nothing. And yet he possessed all things. This is the paradox of ministry. This is what your ministry will do. It will be a joy that you can't comprehend. But it will be a sorrow that you would not wish on your worst enemy. I listening to some pastors describe a flourishing ministry in the evangelical community. And I said, I've not heard of that. What is it? We help pastors and their spouses recover from spiritual burnout. Do you know how difficult it was for me not to turn the table over? Perhaps these individuals needed to get out of the ministry. Because if you're burning out in it, you deserve it. Because when I look at the privilege of who I work with, when I look at the passion that salvation is today and the power that I can overcome a hostile world and walk in the holiness of God and yet with the paradoxes of sorrow and rejoicing, there's no way I can burn out. God, through His word of truth and His power, has given me the weapons of righteousness for my left and my right hand. And I can fight speculation and lofty thought. In front of me and back of me on the left and on the right. Now, if I think I can go out and do this, I'm a fool and I need to burn out. But if I am like the Apostle Paul saying, I'm trying to further the kingdom of God in the power of God to the plan of God. If God is for you, who can be against you? You know what spiritual burnout is? People grow weary of doing well. Listen, it's not the work, people. It's not the work. I know it's not the work. Okay, absolutely emphatically. I can, I bear witness and experience in my own life that it isn't the work. Okay, you know what the problem with burnout is? Unrealized expectations. You believe that you're going to serve God and that you're going to accomplish something that nobody else has been able to accomplish. And when it don't happen... You burn out because you put everything you've got into it and you didn't get it done. You know what? You need to burn out. You need to go sit down and contemplate this. Listen, if you walk into ministries as the Apostle Paul with no expectation, you can't suffer that. (laughs) Can't happen to you. Think about what Ezekiel's expectations were. Jeremiah's expectations. And how would you like to write Lamentations 2? That ain't what we're here for. We have the word of truth. We assault fortresses. And you know what? The outcome is still God's. 
Listen, Paul walked in his ministry expecting the best. Paul walked in his ministries expecting the worst. And when the best came, he was glad and joyous. When the worst came, guess what? He was still glad and joyous. That's why in the Philippian jail, tied to stocks, he can sing praises to God. I want to take the gospel to the house of Caesars. And he did it chained to a Roman soldier under arrest. And he says, yeah, this thing's right on plan. When we understand the paradox of ministry and its extremes, then nothing but victory is going to be there. Listen, if you preach the gospel to a million people and they all reject it, is that success? God's still glorified. But nobody wants that job. But what if that's what he's got you for? You can complain. Go ahead. See if you can get your heavenly union steward to intercede for you. But I I don't understand because you and I have this mentality that says, okay, if I'm ministering, then I expect this to happen. Really? Charles Spurgeon in lectures to my students says, why is it we believe we should be hoisted on the shoulders as great heroes and they took our king out on a cross? Listen. If I can expect the best and when it comes, I can rejoice and I can expect the worst. And when it comes, I rejoice. I'm way ahead of this game. You know what else? There's nothing going to knock you down. There's nothing going to discourage you when it happens. It happened to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It happened to the Apostle Paul. It has happened to all of the faithful for all time. Probably the greatest, one of the, arguably one of the greatest theologians that the United States ever produced was a guy named Jonathan Edwards. He was a professor of theology at one of the Ivy League schools. Okay, And during one communion service, he challenged the people that if you're not saved, do not take of the Lord's table. You know that within a month's time, they fired him. And they sent him as a missionary to the Indians. One of the greatest theological minds ever. Some of you have heard the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's Jonathan Edwards. And they fire him because he doesn't believe you should take the Lord's table if you're not saved. How dare him? Send him to the Indians. You just sit there and go, what? The response to our lives in ministry will be wild extremes. But if you get them, expect them. Because that is a sign of your effectiveness. Which means your obedience is intact because your commitment is rock solid. You'll have glory to dishonor and you'll understand all of these things. 
and you will maintain much endurance. And that much endurance, understanding these extremes, you will have contentment, but you will also have integrity in your ministry. The highs and the lows. Have you ever heard Christians talk about it? I'm in a spiritual valley now. I'm on a spiritual mountaintop now. All right, you, you've heard them guys? That shouldn't happen. It should be just like this. Whatever the extreme is, ain't wavering me. It's all expected. I don't care if it's bad, I don't care if it's good. I'm rejoicing always just to be working with God. There's always going to be a joy there. Whether they come to Christ and step up or whether they hear you and become hostile. That's the paradox. The joy and the sorrow. Listen, since the birth of the church, it's not changed. It's always been that way. When we take the weapons of righteousness in both hands, guess what? We will begin to battle fortresses. We will begin to storm ideas. We will begin to storm reasons and rationales and speculations that are against the word of truth. And yet Paul endured it. And he did it because he understood the privilege. He did it because he had a passion. He did it because he understood the power of the hostile world and the power of a holy God. And he also understood the paradoxes that were going to show up in the midst of this greatest task known to man. And we must understand that if we are going to be effective and efficient in our ministries. If you plan on being an effective ambassador and that is what God has called each and every one of you, then you have to know this. And you have to stand in it. And you can't do this best three out of four. You have to do them all. Because it is the Lord's truth and His power and our responsibility is much endurance. And He's already warned you and I in this text. It's coming. And if it's not, then understand it is because of your commitment and that lack of makes your obedience sparing and your obedience being sparing, you're not effective. It is really that simple. But do not think that there is not ideologies out there that are just hammering away at each and every one of you unrelenting. And that takes you back to your commitment. Because your enemy doesn't sleep. He's not waiting. Well, they look a little tired today. Perhaps I'll give them a break. No, that makes you a sitting duck. Makes you a sitting duck. All right. The joy and the sorrow of ministry. Know that it's there. Know that you have been given the ability to endure it. And know that the battle is against these ideologies, these speculations, and these quote-unquote lofty thoughts. Let's pray. Help us, Father. Help us, Lord, in your truth and your power to stand. You told young Timothy to stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Father, help us. 
Help us to walk worthy. Help us to understand the urgency of the day. Father, help us to understand the integrity of our ministries. And yet, Father, help us to understand that it takes much endurance in the ministry. And help us to be overcomers. Help us to run the race with endurance. Help us not to be entangled in the things of this world. And may your glory be manifest in each of us individually. And Father, in us collectively as representatives, as ambassadors of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you, Father. We love you and praise you. Christ and Christ alone. Amen.